0: What's the most outrageous request you've ever heard of? You know, one of those questions where somebody asks for something that you just have to stop and have a double take. Hang on, did did you really just ask for that? Did you really ask for it expecting the answer to be yes? I've heard a few of them throughout the week. Uh, Somebody told me about, uh, they were asked whether an individual could live in their backyard in a tent. Do you mind if if I just live there, and that's my place of residence. But you know, as I was thinking about outrageous requests, it occurred to me that the most outrageous ones I can think of are in the Bible. So I've come up with my list, my top three most outrageous requests from the Bible. Now, I wonder what you might think of. In fact, I'm going to give you 30 seconds to have a little think if you know your Bible. What are the most outrageous requests you can think of in the Bible? You might want to share it with someone you're with, or perhaps Put it in the comments or the chat, depending on where it is that you're viewing. 30 seconds, what's the most outrageous request you can think of in the Bible? Well, whatever it is that you came up with, and I'm looking forward to seeing what they are. Here are my top three. Let's go in reverse order. In number three, I think the most outrageous request that I can think of has to be Abraham talking to God about Sodom and Gomorrah. Now, if you want to go and read that particular interaction, you can read it in Genesis 18. But basically, Abraham tries to nickel and dime God. He tries to just talk God down. Well, a 100? Oh, well, what about just 50? What about 10? What about 5 God? As he wheels and deals and tries to talk God down. In number two, uh, for most outrageous requests in the Bible, I think you have to have James and John. Two of Jesus' disciples, and you can read about that in Mark chapter ten, who rock up to Jesus and basically try and call shotgun. All right? They they just come up to him and say, "Look, Jesus, when this is all panned out, and, and you end up being king and you're ruling over everything, um, could you put the two of us above everybody else? Is that okay?" Can you seat us at your right hand and your left hand and give us the most glory out of any of your followers? Now, um, the story is told and the rest of the disciples weren't particularly pleased with that request. It's outrageous. But number one, I think, is more outrageous still. And it comes from our reading today from Exodus chapter 33. As Moses said to God, let me see your glory. Let me see you clearly, God. I want to see you. Moses, a a speck of dust on a little rock in a backwater galaxy somewhere across this infinite universe, saying to the creator of all that is, to the one who sits in inapproachable glory and majesty, to the one who is supreme, I want to see your glory. As we began last week, we begin this week with Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 14. Pursue peace with everyone and holiness, without which no one will see the Lord. This is our second vision of a holy God as we pursue deeper holiness. Now, this vision that we're going to get into today, I think is a little bit different to last week's. Last week's, if you like, We saw God from the human perspective. We saw Isaiah's vision, what Isaiah could see as God appeared to him. This week's is a little bit different because it's kind of like God's perspective. God chooses what it is that Moses will see. We get to understand from God's side, if you wanted to know God, what would you need to see? If you wanted to know to see the holy God, What is it about him that is at the very essence of the God that we worship? Now again, like last week, we're going to follow a very similar structure. Deeper holiness begins with gazing at the God of holiness. Deeper holiness requires us to face our own unholiness. And deeper holiness will lead us to boldness in serving our God. Now, the bulk of our time is going to spend on the first of those. Deeper holiness begins with gazing at the God of holiness. Now, I'm back in Exodus 33 and 34. I hope you've got your Bible handy and we can read along through some of it. But again, right, that absolutely outrageous request in chapter 33 and verse 18, Moses said to God, let me see your glory. Now, I wonder about Moses, what it is that prompted that request. Moses was a wuss, right? I mean, don't get me wrong. He's one of the the greatest figures in the history of God's people. But the guy was just a spineless, spineless coward. All the way back from the very beginning when God appeared to him in the burning bush and said, you're going to be my mouthpiece and I'm going to lead my people and you're going to get them out of Egypt. All of these things the very first thing that Moses said was, oh, please not me. Don't send me, God. Go find someone else. I'm not very good. I I don't speak real good. Don't send me. Surely there must be someone else. And even here in this passage, Moses is seemingly a little bit uncomfortable, right? Verse 12, Moses said to the Lord, look, you've told me, lead this people, but you've not let me know who you will send with me. Again, right? Sure, you've asked me to do the job, but but can't can't you give me an offside? Can't can't someone else do it? Verse 15, if your presence doesn't go, well then don't make us go from here. I wonder if this wasn't Moses' final attempt to somehow get out of it. I, I don't know, right? I'm being a bit harsh on the guy. Let me see your glory, and enough, enough of intermediaries, enough of mediators, enough, you know, God, you've, you've spoken to me in the burning bush, you've spoken to me in the glorious cloud, you've spoken to me through angels, but, but I, I just want to see you. I wonder if you ever feel that way. I, I, I just want to see you, God. I want to see your glory. I want to, I want to have a vision of you that will drive me forward, that will seat me in my faith, that will quell my doubts, that will compel me to love you and to serve you. I want to see your glory. I wonder what Moses was expecting to see or or what it is that we might yearn to see. If we were to ask God to show himself to us, what do we mean by that? What is it about God that we want to see? I reckon a burning bush that doesn't burn up would be pretty cool. A a glory cloud in which God descends and his voice booms out of it, that would be pretty cool. What is it that we want to see? Now for some of us, perhaps occasionally we might fall into the trap. If only I had... X experience. If only I was able to see God, hear God, have a vision of God, have an encounter with God, somehow have more, then, oh, then, man, I would be fired up. Let me see your glory, Moses said. And astonishingly, God said, okay. Yes. <laughs> I will give you your outrageous request. But perhaps not quite what you're expecting. I want to see your glory. And God said, what I'm going to show you is who I am. Have a look from verse 19 in chapter 33. God said, okay, I will cause my goodness to pass in front of you. I will proclaim the name, the Lord, before you. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. But he added, you cannot see my face, for humans cannot see me and live. So the Lord said, here is a place near me. You are to stand on the rock. When my glory passes by, I will put you in the crevice of the rock and cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take my hand away. and You will see my back but my face will not be seen. Again, I don't know what Moses was expecting to see. God says, fine, I'm going to pass. You can't see my face, for to see my face will cause you to die. I'll put my hand over you. I wonder if it was like Daniel. You know, the the hand, the disembodied hand that writes on the wall, if if that hand appeared and covered over Moses. But as I go past, you're going to see my back. Muscles, a robe bronze-like skin, a glowing aura. No, what you see when you gaze upon the holy God is his character. His glory is the display of who he is, not the externals, but his heart. And so verse 5 of chapter 34, the Lord came down in a cloud, stood with him there and proclaimed his name. The Lord, the Lord passed in front of him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, is a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger, abounding in faithful love and truth, maintaining faithful love to a thousand generations, forgiving iniquity, rebellion and sin. But he will not leave the guilty unpunished, bringing the father's iniquity on the children and grandchildren to the third and the fourth generation." I want to see your glory. And what Moses was shown was the very character of God. We make this mistake all the time. We make the mistake of thinking that knowing the externals of somebody tells us who they are. We we do it all the time, right? you, You introduce yourself to somebody and you're getting to know them and you talk about The externals, right? I'm I'm the the son of so-and-so. I'm married to so-and-so. I'm the father of these people. I I do this job. I enjoy these hobbies. Those are all outside things. No, to get to know somebody, you need to know their character, right? Are you somebody who values truth over success or is prepared to tell a lie as long as as you get ahead? Are you somebody who values the well-being of others or your own? Are you, these are questions about character. As Moses gazed upon the holy God, as he asked God to reveal his glory to him, what God showed him wasn't the externals, showed him his character. The Lord, the Lord. Who is our God? Who is the God of the universe, the creator, the sustainer, the one who calls us into relationship, the one who calls us to face justice? He is compassionate and gracious. He is slow to anger. He abounds in faithful love and truth. I tell you what, sometimes it's a little bit hard to believe. Is God really compassionate? gracious. God is love, we are told, really? You look at our world today and you see a world that is suffering. I mean, right now, we see it clearly. There's a number of us who are in a WhatsApp chat with Amy Stevens who's one of our link missionaries. She's in Argentina. By the way, if you're a church member and you'd like to be in that chat, you're very welcome to join. Just let me know and I'll I'll get you the details. Um, Amy sends us prayer points. right? We just have an opportunity to, to be in touch regularly with her. And the last couple of weeks, really, has just been a steady stream of the sick, the dying, the suffering. We're still a little bit isolated from the worst of it, I think, but even in our lives, is God really a God of compassion and graciousness? I want for a moment, if I can, to paint a little bit of a picture of God's goodness for you. But to understand God's goodness, we have to understand our world rightly. You see, we have been fed a lie from our earliest days. That it's the lie that our world really likes right now. It's, it's changed throughout history, but right now, particularly in the Western world, the lie is that people are basically good. That at our heart, humanity, we're really not that bad. And there's a few rotten apples, but they haven't really spoilt the bunch. There's a few of us who are at the extremes, but the majority of us, look, okay, worst case scenario, we are neutral. right? Worst case scenario, we just get on with our lives, we do our thing, no big deal, doesn't harm anybody, we just carry on. And it's a pervasive lie, it's our culture, and so it's not impossible, but really, really difficult for us to be able to be honest with ourselves, for us to not have that colour everything we think. But that is not the picture that the Bible paints. The imagery that the Bible uses is incredibly powerful. You think of the husband who walks in on his wife, cheating on him, to find out that she's been unfaithful for years with many other men. That's the sort of picture That's the sort of tear and depth of breaking of relationship between God and humanity. In fact, it's, it's even more than that. It's, it's the terrorist organization that's plotting the assassination of the king. It's a group that is pure evil, determined to deny every single scrap of light. The the chasm, the gulf that exists between the creation and the creator is unfathomable. We are not good, we are not even neutral. To understand God's goodness, we have to understand it in the context of how horrendous people are. You see, by all rights, God ought to have simply destroyed creation right back at Adam and Eve. That's really what ought to have happened. No, but rather we see God is gracious and compassionate. Jesus put it this way. Let me tell you, the first way in which we see God's goodness is that he is kind to both his people and those who are his enemies, to the good and to the evil. In Matthew chapter 5, Jesus puts it in these ways. These words, he says, Matthew 5 verse 44, I tell you, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you. Why? Why on earth would you do such a thing, that you may be children of your Father in heaven? This is what God is like. He causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good. He sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you have? The tax collectors do the same. But he says, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. The perfection of God is seen in the fact that he is kind to those who don't deserve it. That he sends rain on the unrighteous, that he brings the sun to shine upon the wicked as well. Do you want to know if God is good? Make sure you stick your head out next time the sun's shining. Stick your head out the next time the rain is falling and remember, God is causing goodness to flow both on the good and the wicked. But you know what, it's even greater than that. It's not just that God is good towards the whole world, God is also especially kind towards His people. Now, I don't know how familiar you are with the Bible story, but it's throughout a lot of the Old Testament, and we're going to see a bunch of it in Genesis as we continue that later in the year. But God did incredible things for his people in rescuing them, in redeeming them, in making them his people in the first place and providing for them. There's a psalm that I love, Psalm 136, um, that, that, that's so powerful in its repetitiveness that it almost gets a little bit boring. And um, I I, I want to, this is how good the people of God thought God was. This is the psalm that that, that, uh, they came up with, Psalm 136. Now, I want your help with it. Get into it. Um, Basically, every second line is, His faithful love endures forever. So why don't you have a go and say it with me every time we get there. Psalm 136 goes like this. Give thanks to the Lord for he is good. His faithful love endures forever. Give thanks to the God of gods. His faithful love endures forever. Give thanks to the Lord of lords. His faithful love endures forever. He alone does great wonders. His faithful love endures forever. He made the heavens skillfully. His faithful love endures forever. He spread the land on the waters His faithful love endures forever. He made the great lights. His faithful love endures forever. The sun to rule the day. His faithful love endures forever. The moon and stars to rule by night. His faithful love endures forever. He struck the firstborn of the Egyptians. His faithful love endures forever. He brought Israel out from among them. His faithful love endures forever. With a strong hand and an outstretched arm, his faithful love endures forever. And look, the psalm keeps going. You get the gist. Go read it. Go celebrate it. The goodness of God, not only in providing for the wicked and the good alike, but in caring for his people specifically, to rescue them, to redeem them, to provide for them. But of course, God's goodness is seen ultimately and most powerfully and fully at the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. We read these words in 1 John chapter 4. This description of God's love. God's love was revealed among us in this way. God sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. Love consists in this. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Who is the God of holiness? Well, he's the God of love. He's the God who truly is compassionate and gracious. Do you know him? Do you know this God? Have you seen his glory? The glory as of the one and only. The glory that is revealed in his Son. And I'll tell you what, this wonderful truth is the truth from which everything else flows. If you have not seen this glory of God, that his character, that his essence, that the nature of our God is to be one who is steadfastly, unmovably for his people, who abounds in faithful love and truth, who maintains that faithful love to thousands upon generations of those who love him and obey his commandments. This is our God. But you know, our God is also a God of justice. Did you notice that in the second half there of that revelation of God? He will not leave the guilty unpunished, bringing the father's iniquity on the children and grandchildren to the third and fourth generation. You see, our God is a God of holiness, a God full of love and mercy, who acts out of himself, out of his own character, who shows that compassion and that graciousness as he wants to. Back in verse 19 of chapter 33, I will cause my goodness to pass in front of you, and what you will see is that I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. Now, to us, that sounds a little bit like the opposite of kindness and grace and compassion, that you will choose who you will be kind to. It sounds the, the opposite to us because we're a little bit socialist. That is, fairness in our mind requires us to be exactly the same of everybody, to treat everybody identically the same. And that if you are not treating everybody identically the same, then in fact you are not being kind. Imagine I give one of my children a lolly for a moment. Oh, yeah, a lollipop, a chubba a chub. There you go. I give them one of those because the wrapper's hard to get off, so it just takes them longer to get to it. You gotta get your kicks somehow as a parent. I give my kid a chuppachup. I've got three kids. I don't give the other two chuppachups. I just give that one. I wanted to give that child a lolly. I wanted to give them that lollipop. I wanted to see their gladness and their happiness when I gave them that chapacha. Was I wicked? Because I didn't give a chuppachup to the other two? Or was that an act of kindness? You see, if anything compels my action, then it's no longer mercy. It's no longer kindness. If I am now forced to give a chup, a chup to each of my other two children because I gave one to the first one, then what I give to the other two is not kindness. I am compelled to do it. I am required to do it. It is no longer a gift. Now, This verse sits a little bit strangely with us, I think, that God would for some reason visit the iniquity upon future generations. Bringing the father's iniquity on the children and the grandchildren to the third and the fourth generation. Now, I take it this verse can't mean that the children of unbelievers cannot be saved. Let's just be clear there for a moment, right? This cannot mean that... If your, your parents, your father, your mother weren't Christian, therefore it's impossible for you to be saved, and that God's judgement upon them for their rebellion is therefore going to carry out, or be carried out on you, such that there is no hope for heaven. That, that just doesn't hold with the rest of the Bible. You get to Acts, and Peter is teaching that the promise is for all who are here, you and your children, for all who are near, for all who are far, you accept Jesus, you will be saved. There are plenty of examples of individuals, right? Basically, all of the Gentiles, that first generation who heard the gospel, for whom that doesn't hold true. I think the most important point of this verse is the contrast. The contrast between the incredible outpouring and generosity of God's kindness, right? Maintaining faithful love to a thousand generations, compared with the limits upon his judgment. Three or four. If you want to understand God, you've got to understand that balance. That love so far outweighs justice, but justice is there. I take it as well, at least in part, it must be a comment on reality. You see this happen. The sin of the Father has enormous consequences. It plays out in generations still to come. I can see it in my own family. I can see it in those who had unbelieving parents and the effects upon their children and their grandchildren. God in his kindness chose to save some. He was very gracious. Please, Moses said, let me see your glory. And what he saw was a God of compassion and grace a God who is loving and faithful, but a God who will not let the guilty go unpunished. And so, as we pursue deeper holiness, it requires us to face our own unholiness. Moses' claim was so utterly outrageous because of who Moses was and who God was. You see it caught up in that one little interaction in verse 20. Chapter 33, verse 20, God added, You cannot see my face, for humans cannot see me and live. God is so holy. God is so perfect. God is resplendent light before whom there cannot be even the smallest little bit of darkness. Moses, you want to stand before me unveiled, as it were, you want to stand before me and see the fullness of who I am, you will be destroyed. You will be absolutely consumed. You see, like Isaiah, to gaze upon the holy God is is a risky endeavour. For those who are unholy like we are. In Isaiah's wo- words, woe to me for I am ruined. To see God's face is to die. I don't think this is a comment about, right, right a picture or an image or, or the, the very specifics of God's face. As if somehow he's, he's a Medusa, right? You see the, there's something magical about his gaze. I take it it's a comment on God being holy and us not holy. For us to gaze upon the Holy God requires such humility of us to recognise that we are like Moses, that we are so insignificant, that we are on our own. We'd just be consumed before God. This reality must push us to evermore depending upon mercy to kneeling before God, knowing that we're empty, knowing that we've got nothing before him. Who am I that I might be before God? Who am I that I might have the opportunity to gaze upon the Holy God? That we might respond in the end like Moses did. Come down to verse 8 in chapter 34. Moses immediately knelt down on the ground and worshipped, bowing before God. He said, my Lord, if I've indeed found favour with you, please go with us. Even though this is a stiff-necked people, forgive us our iniquity and our sin and accept us as your own possession. To fall flat on our faces before him and to say, I am nothing. I'm I'm yours. What, What I am is yours. What little I have is for you to use. Forgive my sin. Forgive my iniquity. You know, what? I want to show you something really cool. I want to show you the end point. I want to show you what God is achieving in us. We're going to go all the way back to Revelation 22, all the way back to the very last chapter in the Bible. I want to show you this incredible picture of what it is that God is doing. Revelation chapter 22 from verse 1, right? Then the the angel showed me the river of the water of life, clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and the Lamb down the middle of the city's main street. This is a vision of, of, of heaven, right? The tree of life was on each side of the river, bearing 12 kinds of fruit, producing its fruit every month. The leaves of the trees are for the healing of the nations. There will no longer be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city and his servants will worship him. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. Isn't that astonishing? That we get to the end and there are these humanity who right now to see the face of the Holy God is to be consumed kneel before God, but have been so transformed that we get to see it. Deeper holiness requires, it begins with us gazing upon the face of the holy God. It requires us to face our own unholiness. And you know what, thirdly, deeper holiness will then lead us to great boldness in serving God. Something really weird happened to Moses in this encounter. At the very end of that chapter, chapter 34, let me read for you what happened as Moses finished talking to God. Exodus 34 and verse 29, as Moses descended from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the testimony, he didn't realise that the skin of his face shone as a result of his speaking with the Lord. When Aaron and all the Israelites saw Moses, the skin of his face shone, They were afraid to come near him. But Moses called out to them. So Aaron and all the leaders of the community returned to him and Moses spoke to them. They they bolted at the sight. Afterward, all the Israelites came near. He commanded them to do everything the Lord had told him on Mount Sinai. When Moses had finished speaking with them, he put a veil over his face. But whenever Moses went before the Lord to speak with him, he would remove the veil until he came out. After he came out, he would tell the Israelites what he had been commanded. The Israelites would see that Moses' face was radiant. and Then Moses would put the veil over his face again until he went to speak with the Lord. Such was the encounter Moses had with the glory of God that it literally made him glow. He freaked them out when they saw him. He he had to run away. They ran away. So he had to put a veil. He had to cover himself. Gazing upon the holy God caused his face to shine. What a vision. What a sight. What an effect to physically transform you that way. Oh, if only we could have a vision like that. But we do. In fact, we've got something greater. I wonder when when will we realise this? When will we grab hold of this truth for what it really is? When will we accept that what God has done in Jesus is so much more than even that vision that Moses had of the glory of God? We see God's glory in a fullness and a depth and a richness that Moses longed to see. We see Jesus. In 2 Corinthians chapter 3, our second reading in verse 18, Paul puts it like this, we all with unveiled faces are looking as in a mirror at the glory of the Lord and are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory from the Lord who is the Spirit. He, he, He got our vision that made his face shine. We have the very Spirit of God living in us pointing us to the perfect man, Jesus, God himself among us who lived and breathed and walked and died and rose and is with us today. Moses had this one vision. We have Jesus. And the effect ought to be, well, 2 Corinthians 3 verse 10, in fact, what had been glorious is not glorious now by comparison because of the glory that surpasses it No, instead what we have is such a hope, therefore we act with great boldness. Or down in chapter 4, verse 1, since we have this ministry, because we were shown mercy, we do not give up. Gazing upon the Holy God, the one who is compassionate and gracious, even as we are aware of our own weakness and failure, will lead us to boldness, will lead us to act for God's sake to lay ourselves down before God and say, I am yours, use me. Share your glory in me and through me that I might speak, that I might serve as the one who is a recipient of the grace that carries with it glory even greater than what Moses had. What an outrageous request Moses made. Lord, I want to see your glory. We have seen it. We have seen it in the Lord Jesus Christ and we see it even now. May it lead us always to deeper holiness, gazing upon the God who is holy, showing us our own unholiness and may it produce in you that strong sense that the mercy you have received is a mercy that brings glory to our God and must be, must be, must be shared. Seek, pursue peace with everyone and holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are glorious. You are magnificent in your grace, and your compassion, and your steadfast love, and your kindness. You are beautiful. You are so much greater than anything else in our lives. Father, please, would you teach us this truth. Remove from us our sin. Remove from us your wrath. Get in the way of us savouring you and being satisfied in you above all else. Father, with Moses, we want to see your glory and we praise you that you have revealed it to us in Jesus. We know who you are. We see your character. We see your love and your compassion and your grace in Jesus. Father, please, from this truth, would you make us bold for the gospel, bold servants of your kingdom, that we might share this mercy we have received. We thank and praise you and ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.